Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to this week's In Conversation podcast with me, Charlotte Collins. This week, I'm joined by Benita Norris, who in 2010 became the youngest woman to climb Mount Everest, aged just 22. From there, she's taken on countless expeditions, from skiing to the North Pole to attempting to climb the infamous K2 in Pakistan, setting several impressive records along the way. She's since gone on to become an author, motivational speaker, and a mother. And having recently joined us on the Sheer Luck Show, I'm thrilled she's back to chat to us about all she's achieved again today. Welcome, Benita. Thank you, Charlotte. Such a lovely introduction. Thank you. I so loved your interview with Georgie on the Sheer Luck Show. It must have been a couple of months ago now, mustn't it? And I'm so excited to talk to you today and find out more about your amazing story, your inspirational story. I'm, fe- I'm feeling really paling in comparison when it comes to life achievements with you today. <laughs> I think we all feel a bit like that in lockdown, though. I've like forgotten who I was. This is the perfect opportunity to, uh, to remind yourself. Yeah, so exactly. could we start at the very beginning. Can you talk to me about your childhood, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? So I grew up in Wokingham, a little town in Berkshire. There are no mountains there. There's nothing really exciting. And um, I went to a girls' school, which was actually a state school, and had some great teachers there who were really inspiring and kind of told us girls that, you know, we could do anything that any man did. But I didn't grow up in a climbing family. I was never taken on like walking holidays to the Lake District or anything like that. My parents would much prefer to sit by a pool in Spain somewhere and drink cocktails. So we went on those kind of all-inclusive Spain trips as kids. Every time that I got to go on a school ski trip, I would just be completely blown away that there was always this feeling of connection with the mountains but as a kid and even as a young adult I I didn't ever put that into action because mountaineering was just not something you did where I grew up. What happened how did that seed get planted and and how did you go on to do something about it? I went to university having done nothing about this connection to the to the hills uh, and one evening I got invited to a lecture about mountaineering and it was at the Royal Geographical Society and I turned up and it was about climbing Everest. My jaw was on the floor as I listened to these two climbers explain how they had just reached the highest point on planet Earth, the summit of Everest. And when they got there, they saw the curvature of the Earth beneath them. Because from the summit, you know, you're so high up. It's like you can look down on our planet from space. And I had never, as I said, climbed anything. But I knew there and then I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And it took me months to actually pluck up the courage to start climbing because there's a very big difference between saying you're going to do something and actually doing it especially Um, something like climbing Everest yeah exactly it's like I've bitten off a lot more than I could chew and I think in certain ways ignorance is bliss and it was great to be kind of naive and a beginner because I didn't know what I was getting into and I started just at an indoor climbing wall and it's really difficult to understand how climbing on a plastic indoor wall could ever lead you to climbing to the top of the world but it it was just stepping stones from there really just starting to climb outdoors then starting in the Alps and then the Himalayas and then finally Everest. And the thing that was ignited in you when you heard that lecture was that a desire to reach the top of Everest was it to be the youngest person ever to you know achieve something like that or was it simply just to climb you know what was the benchmark at that point? 
I loved the idea of the lifestyle in the mountains, the fact that your routine was reduced to sleeping, eating, climbing, surviving, and that nothing else mattered and that you could do that for two months and that you wouldn't ever have to, you know, hand in an assignment or an essay at uni. You wouldn't have to answer emails or have a phone on you. I mean, in those days, you didn't even have like phone signal, let alone Wi-Fi at base camp. So just the opportunity to go into a world where you're completely connected to nature and you're you're really relying on your own body to survive. That's what I think attracted me to it. I had no idea at first that I could break a record as you know one of the youngest people to climb the mountain when I realized that as well that was like oh my gosh you know I have to do it now but initially it really was just that wow like that's the best thing I can imagine spending my days doing I know that sounds a bit nuts it's a a true vocation for you when you started climbing inside rock climbing centers and that kind of thing I mean presumably it was just a hobby at that stage yeah I mean it's still a hobby now I feel really awkward about calling myself professional climber because um, I'm not, very, I don't think I'm actually very good at it. But I threw myself into it immediately saying, I'm going to climb Everest and I want to do it in the next few years. That was the goal. It was the kick out of bed every morning. It was the thing that made me turn my life upside down, get a job whilst I was finishing my degree so I could pay for climbing trips, buy all the equipment I needed. I was completely obsessed. Like I sacrificed everything to teach myself how to climb as quickly as possible. When you look back now at the years before that, at the years before that lecture and that kind of pivotal moment, can you recognise that type of character trait in yourself? So kind of forgetting the way it manifested and the interest in which it manifested, but, you know, it was kind of becoming really obsessed with the idea of something quite characteristic or was that something that was completely new to you? That is a really good question, Charlotte. If I'm honest, when I announced to friends and family I wanted to climb Everest, they rolled their eyes and they were like, here we go again. (laughs) So I had a bit of a reputation for getting obsessed with things and then dropping them when they got a bit difficult. On the same side of things, I had also had quite a serious eating disorder when I was a teenager and actually was, you know, too ashamed really to reach out for help professionally or to my parents. And so I dealt with it privately and I managed to recover as as best as I could completely alone in private and no one knew what I was going through. But I think the strength that that gave me to go through that process, I realized with my eating disorder that if I could go from rock bottom and actually get to a point which I thought was impossible in my life, then what else could I do? And so in some ways, Everest was almost like an extension of taking those steps out of the rock bottom that I'd hit as a teenager. I just kept going after that. Those kind of experiences in life, they shape us so much. And just because I've climbed a mountain, you know, that I've used the same skills that we all use in different parts of our lives to cope with things. When people say to me, oh, I could never do that. I think, well, you probably have, but just in a different way. You know, we've all had to overcome stuff and they all apply to all sorts of things. Okay, let's go back to the kind of the hobby side of it. You started, you set yourself a goal. How did you escalate that? You know, you turned up on day one at an indoor climbing centre, talk us from A to B? So the best thing I did was I found great support. And I immediately contacted the gentleman that gave the lecture um, that inspired me, Rob Cassidy and Kenton Cool. To my you know, surprise, they agreed to chat to me to kind of guide me through how I could start climbing, how I could take these stepping stones. Kenton even met with me in London uh, just for a coffee and talked me through it. And it was that kind of 
support from people who'd been there and done it, who could look you in the eye and say, you can do this. You don't have to be an Olympic athlete. You just have to train really hard. You just have to put all of these skills in place. That was probably the biggest piece of dynamite in this whole thing. It was just having great mentors. So with their guidance, I was sort of pushed towards, you know, climb this mountain, climb that mountain. And I kind of did that. And in fact, I ended up climbing Everest on Kenton Cool's team. So that relationship was, was probably the most important. It's pretty straightforward. If you wanted to go and, you know, start to climb, you start indoors, you might start climbing outside in the UK, go to Wales, climb Snowdon, go up to Scotland, climb Ben Nevis, and then you might head out to the French Alps. And it just goes from there, really. I mean, at the same time, I was also finishing my degree. And on top of that, mountaineering is ridiculously expensive. So I didn't just have to train and learn how to climb and finish my degree. I also had to find like 50,000 quid to actually put my name down on a place to climb Everest. There was a lot of moving parts that all had to come together. I must say, it didn't really feel like a hobby at the time. (laughs) It felt like the biggest challenge of my life. That's crazy. What does £50,000 get you? Mm, Good question. I have asked it myself and I've never really been given a very clear answer. It doesn't seem to be necessarily the most transparent business, Everest. And I think there's a lot of profit involved. It's deemed by what people are willing to pay. So it's not necessarily like, oh, it costs this much to get you to base camp. This is how much the Sherpas cost, the, the fees to get a permit to climb the mountain from the Nepalese government. They add up, but not to 50,000 quid. So I think there is quite a lot of uh, people lining their pockets. Yeah, okay. Did you wake up one morning and think, I'm ready? How do you know when you're ready to actually begin, you know, formalizing the process of climbing Everest? Yeah, there was a very specific moment. And it was when I went to the Himalayas for the first time, I climbed the world's eighth highest mountain. It's called Mount Manaslu beautiful peak. Some people have actually tracked in the Manaslu region. It's a stunning part of Nepal. And we um, reached the the four summit and this mountain is only a few hundred meters shorter than Everest. So when I got to the top, I was like, well, if I can get this far, I can climb another few hundred meters. I know physically I can do it. And that first big expedition to the Himalayas was such a baptism of fire for me I mean I turned up on the first day and by the end of that first day I was you know crying my heart out missing home feeling completely out of my depth didn't know half the things I needed to know so wanted to give up and my teammates kudos to them just basically said don't give up now you just take it day by day and I took that on board I took it day by day and we got to the day when we reached the summit and that mountain really transformed me into an actual climber rather than a wannabe one what is it that you were learning in that time and those skills that you were like okay I've now got those skills to climb Everest like is that all physical is it mental is it to do with packing a bag I mean for people who are complete you know mountaineering novices like myself what what is it that you need to know before you can climb a mountain I think that's a great question. And it's almost like asking Djokovic, how does he serve a tennis ball? Because when you know it all, it's really hard to kind of break it down and explain it. But as soon as I'm in the mountains with beginners, I can see everything that they're not doing properly or that they could improve on from the way that they've packed their bag to um, the type of water bottle that they've got, the way they're walking, how they've layered their kit. There are 
literally tens of thousands of little points every day in the mountains that you can optimize to get better. And it takes a long time to learn them all. It, it does take sort of being there on a mountain in all conditions to learn these, these silly things. Like a really key thing, for instance, is when you take your helmet off, what way do you put it on the floor do you put it so it's on the kind of curved bit that goes over your head or do you put it on the more flat bit well obviously you put it on the flat bit but no one explained that to me I put my helmet down on the sort of rounded side and it got, went spinning down a mountain it's just things like that can be so life and death if you lose your helmet in that way and then you get hit by a rock but they are just so little that you have you kind of could never like list them if you're not there but the main bulk of it was you do have to have, be a competent rock climber especially women i'm not trying to generalize here but every female climber i've climbed with we have less upper body strength so there's a thing called jugging in in high altitude climbing which is there are a lot of ropes that are put in place what you do is you pull up on these ropes with a piece of equipment called a juma, which is all getting very technical, but it takes loads of brute upper body strength, just like hauling yourself up this rope. Whereas if you're a competent rock climber, then you don't have to pull up on these ropes. You can actually climb the mountain and save a lot of energy, but that requires a lot of skill. Secondly, can your body survive in the death zone, for instance? The death zone is above 8,000 meters it's where there's so little oxygen that as you sort of heading up towards the same height that jumbo jets fly at and nothing survives there long term, especially not human beings. So when you're in the death zone, you're often breathing bottled oxygen. For some people, even that's not enough. So you really do need that experience to find out how your body reacts. And then on top of that, it's just learning how to react to emergency situations. Like if someone falls down a crevasse, do you know how to build an anchor and set up a rope system to pull them out? Do you know all the different knots for climbing that you would need in different scenarios? So a lot of it actually in practice, you don't always use, but you need to have those skills in case something goes wrong. So there's just thousands of things. Um, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint one or two, but, but there are a few. And again, kind of forgive my naivety, but things like learning how your body responds to the death zone. Can you really only understand that from physically experiencing this altitude? I mean, how do you go about testing whether you can make it in those kind of conditions? You do have to go up and see how you do. And the thing is, is that depending on so many other factors around how hydrated you are, how, how exhausted your body is, how cold it is, you might react differently every time you go. I've always been very fortunate to have felt very strong in the death zone. I, as a, a woman, um, I find when I see other women in the mountains that we tend to start off like at the back of the pack, at the bottom of the mountain. But as we get higher, we tend to come into our own and get faster. And I think there's just so much to be said around women and endurance because it's it becomes a real mental thing up there. And I think as long as you look after yourself, you hydrate, you rest well, you tend to do okay in the death zone. But for some people, it's very obvious, often much lower than the death zone. So you're talking like four to 5,000 meters, their bodies just shut down. And I actually had a team member who, you know, wrote the 50,000 pound check out of his own money and then didn't do all the preamble that I did to the Himalayas and climbing all the other mountains. He just sort of turned up and his body shut down at base camp and he couldn't actually even step onto Everest. So that was like the most expensive <laughs> base camp trek <laughs> that you could ever do. And what about mental preparation? Can anything prepare you? Did you try to do anything to prepare yourself? How does one even go about that? 
I definitely learned a lot about the importance of holding holding it together in the mountains from my teammates because as I, I mentioned already on my first Himalayan expedition I was a bit of an emotional wreck a lot of the time I reacted often to scary situations or when I was tired I would let it show and I do remember one day a teammate sort of saying to me Bonch like you've got to hold it together like shut up <laughs> stop crying there was no space really for showing a lot of emotion because it just drains the rest of your teammates and and from that day on I made a very conscious decision to stay calm and to not let things get on top of me and I I realized that that really is a choice and secondly before the expedition that's when I think a lot of the mental angst happens when you're actually at home and you're not on the mountain. That's when you sort of spend your nights lying awake in bed thinking, oh, my God, is this my, my last week with my family? Um, am I making the right decision? Will I ever come back? Like, what am I leaving behind? Actually, as soon as you get to the mountain, all of that angst tends to melt away for the large part. But in terms of mental skills, I think one of the biggest things is visualization. I really find it so empowering on the mountain to like sit in my tent and meditate what can happen and when I leave the tent I'm going to go up to this bit what if this goes wrong what if that goes wrong and I go through different disasters and how I would cope with them so that if it does happen I've kind of already done it and I think that's been really powerful in, in hairy moments um, in just keeping me calm. I always think of visualization as only imagining the best possible outcome that's how I've used it personally <laughs> so that's interesting that you use it to kind of doomsday prepare yourself. Absolutely. And even when um, I was pregnant and planning on giving birth at home, a lot of the rhetoric in the hypnobirthing world is like zero negativity, like don't let it in, don't don't speak to people that have had bad birth experiences. And I totally understand that. But for me, I wanted to know everything that could go wrong because I wanted to like go through what I would do and how I would react. And so it was really important for me preparing for birth to hear all the horror stories. People thought, you are totally mad. Like, don't go there. Just focus on you having the best birth ever. I did have an amazing birth, but I think that was because I was fully aware of everything that could go wrong. And, and that was a really important skill the mountains taught me. So that, yeah, it, it's, it's, those mental skills are so transferable. I guess that gives you a sense of control as well over the situation, you know, a situation in which you don't have much control to feel like you have envisaged all of it before is probably giving you at least a sense of that. Yeah, it's just about not being surprised by anything because you've already been there and you already know what you're going to do. And that's a superpower, I think. Yeah, I get that. Okay, talk me through. I mean, it sounds quite a lot to say the whole thing, but, you know, from kind of beginning to end, how long does it take? Where do you fly to? Like... Can you just explain yeah. a bit about the logistics of climbing Everest? Yeah, let's do like a quick run up the mountain. So I climb from the south side. There are two main routes. The north, you go to Tibet. And uh, I don't know anything about that. So we're going to talk about the south side, which you climb from Nepal. Quickly, um, why would you choose one over the other? What's the difference? Well, I decided to climb from the south side because uh, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had climbed from there in 1953, the first people to reach the summit of Everest. And I loved that story. It was one that inspired me the most. And I wanted to see what I had read about in their books. And on top of that, it just sounded like a much more beautiful climb. The mountain's very different on the south side. It's much steeper, whereas on the north, it's, it's quite a long ridge. And I felt like I would perform better on a much steeper, faster climb. And uh, it just sounded like a beautiful uh, country, Nepal, and I wanted to, to go and see it. So you trek for 
about eight or nine days once you landed in Paul to Everest Base Camp. And that in itself is a really huge undertaking. I mean, people die trying to get to base camp from altitude sickness. We arrive there with a lot of base camp trekkers and they get to turn around and go back to Kathmandu to celebrate. And we have only just started. So we then look up the mountain and there's, I think, from there another three and a half vertical kilometres of climbing for us to do. Um, from base camp, you create a home. We all have our own tents. We have a mess tent uh, in the middle and you stay there most of the time. The actual time we spend on the mountain is minimal compared to the, the resting time that we spend at base camp. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can I just ask, sorry, what is base camp? like environmentally you you hear so much about it what does it kind of look and feel like so it's on a glacier called the kumbu glacier so it's ice that's covered in rubble and rock so it doesn't look very pretty but you are in this amphitheater surrounded by the world's highest mountain so you you know wake up every morning and just see like the majesty of this these peaks surrounding you and you're just this little tiny speck on this glacier in the middle at night i think it drops to about minus 10 minus 15 so not so bad get the most amazing stars I remember so many nights just like brushing my teeth outside my tent and seeing my breath crystallizing in front of me and and then seeing billions of stars above and the silence all you can hear is is the glacier really at night and it cracks as it moves it's always moving and the cracks sound like gunshots these sounds just you know echoes around you and obviously a crack could just open up beneath your tent as well so there's that as you're going to sleep you can hear the rumblings of avalanches in the distance I've been to Everest Base Camp twice climbing different mountains and the second time a huge sinkhole opened up just by our tents so it was just pure luck that we hadn't set our camp up like 20 meters over because we would have like literally just been swallowed up by the glacier as this whole sinkhole just appeared but yeah I mean it's also a tent city there's like a thousand people there you know it's noisy sometimes it can be you know smelly sometimes but overall it's just this really inspired pumped up group of people that are there for this one chance to get to the top of the world gosh god oh that gave me goosebumps so you arrive at base camp how long do you spend there before you tackle Everest itself probably four or five days you know you've got a lot of equipment to sort out you're making a, a plan with the team and then really sort of going on a few little kind of walks towards the mountain itself um, you're going to gene yourself up for it and then the day comes you get up at 
three o'clock in the morning. I think I got about half an hour sleep that night because I was just terrified. And I remember just sort of sitting in the mess tent drinking the most sugary coffee that I've ever drunk because I couldn't stomach any food. That's a, a symptom of being at high altitude, really. You, you really struggle to eat anything. You completely lose your appetite. The Sherpas burn juniper, you know, for good luck on the mountain. So you walk through all these burning embers and I, I really remember the smell and then just like the, the crunching of our feet over the glacier as we walk in darkness to the base of the mountain. And then you start to walk up the what's called the Kumbu Icefall, which is essentially where it gets so steep that this frozen river becomes a frozen waterfall. So it's this like complete chaos of ice blocks tumbling over themselves at a snail's pace. But suddenly, sometimes these blocks of ice that have been there for like a thousand years, they'll just collapse on you. And so that takes about five or six hours to climb through. And my goodness, like when you hear a big piece of ice fall, the the whole ice fall starts to shake and snow dust rises off the ground. It's really eerie. When there's a dangerous section in the ice fall, the Sherpas are very spiritual and they will hang up prayer flags. And I've come across like sections in the, in the ice fall where there have been prayer flags and I'm like, oh shit, I should be scared now. <laughs> like I had no idea what I should be scared of, but like there are prayer flags here. So, oh my goodness, like what's going what's gonna to go wrong? So uh, yeah, it's a very eerie climb going around these big ice blocks and you weaving in and out. It's like a maze and it's so cold. You're just begging for the sun to, sun to come up. And finally, when it does, within about 10 minutes, it's absolutely roasting. You're in this oven where all the light is reflecting off the ice and you're cooking. And my skin, my goodness, if you want to have youthful skin, do not <laughs> climb in the Himalayas because... I've really, really ruined my skin from it. But yeah, I mean, God worth it. You know, you get to camp one on the mountain and you're you're sort of up there then and that's it from there. Despite the lack of UV protection. How many days then does it take? What, what are you doing over that time? And, you know, what, how many hours a day are you climbing? Kind of talk, talk me through the, the full process of getting up and getting down. So from camp one, we have another three more camps up the mountain, which... The Sherpas, they they just do everything on the peak. They're incredible. And that for me, Everest was really my first experience of being on like a commercialized mountain in that way. So you just sort of get to camp and someone's like made the tent and all we have to carry is our equipment, which was, you know, heavy enough, but nothing like carrying tents up. That was slightly weird, but also we were so thankful for it at the time. So there's four camps and we climb up to each one. Often we we tag it and then come straight back down again because our bodies are so exhausted from pushing up to new high altitude points that we actually wouldn't be able to cope sleeping there the night. So we drop back and then um, sleep low and then climb up high the next day. And you should feel a lot better the second time you arrive there. So there's this up and down rotation tactic that we use to kind of coax our bodies into acclimatizing. And by acclimatizing, I mean making more red blood cells And that is the only aim that we have for about 90% of the expedition is making new red blood cells. So we keep pushing our bodies a little bit higher every day, like coaxing that that chemical reaction. And uh, when we've gotten to about 7,000 meters, which is camp three, that's pretty much the highest that you can go. Your body can't acclimatize any higher. So from there, um, we we then start to use bottled oxygen. From that point, we've dropped down from camp three all the way to base camp for about five days, 
just to really like feed ourselves up as much as possible, rest, look after any injuries we've picked up. And then we've still got those red blood cells. So we then race back up to 7,000 meters in no time at all. Um, Yeah, even though it took us like weeks. Sorry, just to clarify, you go back to base camp, having done most of it, and then you go back up again. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Multiple, multiple times. We do every time we hit a new camp we will go back to base camp to rest and recover. So you go up and down the mountain. Nuts, I had no idea. Surely then going back to base camp feels like this massive relief almost. Like that must make the whole thing a bit less scary or no? It can be a bit frustrating sometimes, but also if you're feeling strong, you kind of want to stay and you think, I think we could push it to the next camp. And also the ice fall being so dangerous, like the ice fall is the gateway to the mountain but it's also the dragon in the way if you like guarding Everest from base camp every time you pass through it you are really at the highest risk of avalanches you know crevasses opening up beneath you crossing metal ladders over cracks in the ice that are like 10 meters wide and 40 meters deep the ice fault is incredibly dangerous and so that is like, in some ways, the worst thing It's like, oh, my God, we've got to go to base camp. But we've got to get through the ice fall first. And then you've got to go back through it again on the way up. But it is it is a relief. I mean, I must say at base camp, you do get itchy feet very quickly. And you just want to get back up. So we race back up to 7000 meters and um, without any kind of rest, really, because our bodies are ready for it. And then we put on our bottled oxygen and we start our summit push really from there. So we'll climb all day to camp four, which is summit camp and that's at 8,000 meters and then a few hours later 11 o'clock that night we'll then leave the tents again and we climb through the night to reach the summit for the sunrise the next morning so that's a massive day where you leave camp three at seven o'clock in the morning and then you get to the summit of Everest 24 hours later um, with only a few hours rest and zero sleep so it's like the biggest endurance marathon of your life in the death zone breathing bottled oxygen with no sleep and probably haven't eaten any food for a few days either at that point. But it's amazing what you can do when you ask your body to like dig deep. Wow. Did you have any scary or hairy moments on the way up? No, being there did really kind of reveal to me just how commercialized it was. And I was, I did get quite frustrated by that and being, you know, being a part of that, I guess, as well. But the, the other side of it was it was magical. I mean, the views were insane. Climbing in the death zone, looking down on thunderstorms beneath me and seeing the most incredible stars from near the summit. And then the sunrise. Oh, my goodness. It just illuminated the curvature of the earth. And it was like being in a heavenly place. I mean, it's as close as you can get to the moon by walking. So, no, there was nothing bad that happened on the way up it was just the way down that was tough tough as in just tough or tough Um, as in you know bad things happened we got to the summit we were only there for about 10 minutes you're only halfway so um you gotta get all the way back down before you can separate and uh, on the way down having just done that 24 hour push I'd taken my eye off the ball it's completely my fault but I just picked up the wrong piece of rope and it was caught around a rock. And as I waited myself on this rope to walk face forward down the mountain, we we get quite cocky with like walking down the mountains, even when it's nearly vertical. Um, we'll just sort of wrap our arm around a rope and then like face forward, walk down. And I was trying to do this and the rope sort of came loose and 
I just fell. So then we were sort of up in the death zone. I was injured. And, you know, if it weren't for my teammates, I don't think I'd be here now because they got me back to our summit camp. And fortunately, the next morning, I was strong enough to climb back to base camp unaided. But um, certainly that one slip after the summit could have definitely killed me. It was bittersweet, actually, getting back to base camp after that whole magical experience, as I've described it, um, to then sort of be marred by a really stupid mistake on the way down. So it felt like a huge success, but it also felt like a really annoying failure at the same time. And that definitely then, that sort of perceived failure that I had really inspired me to want to go on and continue to climb more mountains because I thought I, I, I can do better than that I, that shouldn't have happened so what happened you left Nepal you fly home then what how long did it take you to start getting excited to do something else to raise the money to do something else what came next I was fortunate that I did find a British business to sponsor me that 50,000 pounds that we were talking about um, and they were an amazing support and uh, they really you know, when they found out I got to the top, I became the youngest British woman ever to climb Everest. And they went nuts and like contacted the press and things. So when I got home at the airport, there was like a wall of press taking my picture. Like I was this nobody. I had just come off this mountain where I'd been isolated for two months, living my dream of having like no outside contact. And then came home and had journalists outside my house turning on the news and seeing myself on the news it was just the most bizarre few days in the center of this media storm where I was on the front cover of newspapers and being my parents were being called up in the middle of the night I have never experienced anything like it and for anyone that's been in kind of the eye of a media storm even though it wasn't you know anything negative it's quite scary they start writing about like your past life and contacting ex-boyfriend it was nuts to suddenly be this mountaineering celebrity having only like I've climbed Everest like loads of people have done that but after all of that faded down for me I hadn't succeeded on Everest I I had to go off and do other things and even today people are like why would you (laughs) why would you continue climbing but I, I knew I had to define my own success if you like and so that was when I thought right I'm going to go back to the Himalayas and I'm going to do much harder stuff (laughs) so what's harder what does what does that even mean well god Everest is a really straightforward mountain it's not difficult to climb if you're a mountaineer but today the challenge in Everest is actually more in like the standing in the queues and things like that which I just think is awful and I, I kind of tasted that on that mountain and I thought never again I never want to climb on a mountain that's that commercialized again So there are loads of peaks out there that nobody wants to climb. No one's ever heard of because they're freaking dangerous and no one's ever heard of them. So (laughs) no one cares if you risk your life on them. And I thought, perfect. Like that's, that's what I'll go and do. There's a peak next to Everest called Lotsi. It's the fourth highest in the world and uh, just shy, you know, of Everest really, only a few hundred meters shorter. And I decided that was going to be it. And I went back there two years later and sort of, went to Everest base camp, stayed there, climbed on the Everest route. And then at the last minute, you separate from Everest and you climb up to the summit of Lotsi. And it just felt so special to be back there. But also with this, with this big goal of mine, which was like, I'm not going to mess up on the on the way down again. And uh, it was big success. And it was also amazing to climb with the same team, because we reached the summit of Lotsi. And I got to sort of turn around to Um, my teammate and say like thank you for saving my life on Everest and we were looking at Everest 
the sun coming up, the mountain was this beautiful pink color. And uh, he was a man of few words, but he sort of like nodded and squeezed my hand. And I just thought this is the best moment of my life. And I'm so happy that we got to have that after the, the disaster on Everest to have this moment on this on this new peak. It felt like we came full circle and that was lovely. Talk to me about K2. For those who don't know, kind of why is it so notorious? Why did you decide to do it? And what happened to you there? Um, so K2 is the second highest peak in the world, but considered far more of a mountaineer's mountain than Everest. It's in Pakistan. It's in the Karakoram, which is a, a different mountain range to the Himalayas. The mountains in the Karakoram are like spiky shark teeth. They are so steep and so spindly and just stunning. Just to get to K2, the trek is really dangerous. Like you're crossing these glaciers. Unfortunately, there's, you know, in those parts of the world, they still use mules and yaks and donkeys and stuff to carry things around because there's no roads and we would often see you know like these poor donkeys that have fallen down crevasses and things like that and you just think oh my god that could be us we've got to be so careful you felt like as you got deeper into the mountains that they were closing in behind you because to just to get back out would be to risk your life again and that was just the walk in um so k2's got this crazy reputation and it's also called the Savage Mountain. And that's in reference to the fact that there's this story or this legend around K2, which is that it's cursed for women. I don't believe any of that rubbish. But when I went to K2, I couldn't actually ask a British woman what it was like to climb because every British woman that had tried it had never returned. That was like a big weight on my shoulders. You know, you get to base camp and you feel like there's no way out. The, the walk back out is really dangerous. But then actually when we stepped onto the peak itself, it's really steep, much steeper than anything I climbed in the Himalayas. The avalanches raged down nonstop. And there were times when we just held our breath in our tents at night thinking this is it. The, the roar of it coming down and you just think this is heading towards us. And then it would pass and you'd think, oh my God, what are we doing here? I need to call home. Like, um, I need to tell my parents I love them. <laughs> We're not going to get off here alive. At the same time, I, I just thought it was the best climb I'd ever done because it really tested my climbing skills. And I loved that. Unfortunately, I did get a cerebral edema, which means a brain swell, which is caused by the altitude. And I think, again, like generally every mistake that happens to me in the mountains is my fault. And this one was down to the fact that I just rushed up the peak. I was going way too quickly. I was so excited to be there after, you know, all the fear and the worry. Flew up the mountain and got, got a bad headache, essentially, but a deadly headache and was told to descend. So got down quite safely. And then about a week later, a huge avalanche wiped out everything that we'd put on the mountain um wiped out all of our camps all of our ropes every other team that was there as well there were teams from america teams from poland france and we lost in total we realized about two hundred thousand dollars of equipment in that avalanche it was just a miracle that no one was there on the mountain at the time so at that point everyone packed up and left and um that was i think the third or fourth year in a row that nobody reached the top of K2. So it wasn't a big surprise that we didn't, you know, the chances didn't look good. But did I feel like we'd failed? I felt like it was such a big success because we went anyway, even though we kind of were, you know, the, all of the odds were against us, but we still tried. And I think there was so much to be proud of in that. So you don't lose sleep over it today? 
No, I feel like it was in what some ways it's just the biggest success to do something when you know full well you're probably going to fail but to try anyway to get as far as you possibly can and then it's like game over the mountain wins the avalanches wipes us out we tried and I think it was so easy to look at all the statistics especially for women and go no I'm not going to go there but I came away alive and I felt really proud of that I would love to maybe go back there one day, but it's not going to be for a while. I've got a two-year-old daughter. I'm just not in that headspace at the moment. Did you actively give up or did, you know, life get in the way? I think after K2, I'd also met my now husband. You know, love does things to you. And I think at that point, I was really like, I want to see a future with him. I want to have children. And the going away for like, two or three months at a time risking your life in the mountains just didn't feel like compatible with the next few years so I I definitely made a conscious decision to put it on the back burner then the pandemics happened and everything else and it just sort of seems like that life is now gone like so far away now but I know that once things open up my daughter's off to school and things it will be a lot easier to take on those kind of challenges again. You have been doing TED Talks in the meantime most motivational speaking so What are those about? What is your, I mean, I feel like there's been a a million inspiring sound bites from you throughout this podcast, but, but what is the, you know, the crux of your, your motivational speaking? The crux of it changes all the time, depending on what the the client wants, really. In a nutshell, you know, what most people want to hear about when they invite me over the next motivational speaker is the normal person, you know, grew up in a place where there were no mountains and then wakes up at 22 and decides I'm going to take on the world's highest peak. That's very bold. I was very ambitious. And I think what people want to hear about is the importance of like following your own path. There were so many people that told me you can't do something like this. And, oh, you've done that. Why do you have to do this? You have to really define what success is for you. And I think people, they like hearing a story of someone who just is willing to go out there and and do what they want, not what society thinks they should do it's a funny thing that I don't know many climbers that are motivational speakers I think generally we're all quite shy retiring types that aren't very good in um, public settings but I just started doing it when I was 22 like straight off getting off Everest how do you think that climbing and your experiences climbing have shaped who you are and how you approach day-to-day life firstly I think it made me realize that when I think I want to give up, that's very early on in the process that when my, like that voice comes up in my head, like, come on, just it would be so much easier if you pack this in. And I think the most important thing that mountaineering has taught me is that I am nowhere near that line of having to give up. I've got so much more to give. Um, so I do remind myself of that all the time. And I think secondly, it's as well as I've grown older, I I, I reflect differently on that success of Everest because today in 2021 I also see like the layers of privilege that were in there and luck you know all those kind of things of of being in my situation at that time that also supported me to to climb that mountain which others don't and I, I do think that kind of when you've had an experience like that you you do become very aware of how lucky you are and that shapes the way I see the world um but but mostly it's examples like when I gave birth you're just tapping into those mental skills really around how to cope under pressure and just little silly things. But do I wake up in the morning and think about, oh, I 
I stood on the summit of Everest. No, I wake up in the morning, like kicking my husband, being like, get me a cup of tea. I can't cope until I've had some caffeine. So it doesn't change you in some ways at all, but in other ways, probably has changed me more than I realise. What are you most proud of? In terms of mountaineering, I think definitely getting to the top of Lotsi two years after Everest and getting to say, you know, thank you for saving my life to my teammate. It was the best moment of my life in some ways. Lovely. Benita, thank you so much. What an absolute honour to talk to you. Benita, you have a book, The Girl Who Climbed Everest. It's available at Amazon. So if the last hour didn't give you your fill, um, then you can read more about Benita's amazing story there. I feel like we could all do with a bit more of your your mentality, whether you <laughs> whether you agree or not. Um, I think we can all definitely learn something from that. Benita, you have a book, The Girl Who Climbed Everest. It's available at Amazon. So if the last hour didn't give you your fill, um, then you can read more about Benita's amazing story there. Thank you so much for, for talking to me today. It was absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you have any feedback at all, please do email podcast at sheerlux.com. Don't forget also to rate, review, subscribe, and tell friends. Thanks. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.